Welcome back, listeners, to Two Broads Talking Politics. As usual, I am one of the broads, your host, Sophie, and I'm here with your co-host, Kelly. Hey, Kelly. Hey, everybody. And today's podcast is about the religious left in the United States. I think a lot of us who are interested in politics hear about the religious right a lot, but maybe not so much about the religious left. But especially in recent years, the religious left has become um, a force in politics. And so we are talking to a few other members of the religious left. I consider myself a member of the religious left as well to sort of learn a little bit more about the religious left and how people of left-leaning political persuasions come to their political beliefs through their faith traditions. So we have with us today uh, Scott Robinson. He's an interfaith minister and hospice chaplain. Welcome, Scott. Hi there. Thank you. And we also have Ryan Fordyce, who works in development at the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Welcome, Ryan. Hello. Hello, and thank you for joining us, both of you. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Yeah, happy to be here. So my first question for both of you is if, if both of you could tell us a little bit about your faith journey and how that sort of matched up with your political beliefs. Have you always considered yourself a member of the, the religious left? Have you always had liberal viewpoints? Have you always considered yourself a Christian? Well, you know, before there was a self-identified Christian right, I'm not sure I thought of myself as the Christian left. I think, at least for me, Christian left defines itself as being not the Christian right. And I guess I grew up Christian, grew up in a Christian house. I'm still a Christian. I spent 10 years teaching college music at an uh, evangelical university. And I used to tell my students, I don't like the expression when I became a Christian, because I figure I was always a Christian, even when I was an idiot. <laughs> so but you, you, hear, you hear the law, when I became a Christian, meaning, I guess, when you became intentional about your faith. But my faith has always informed my politics, which has always been uh, left-leaning. But really until, I'd, I'd say, the end of my high school years when Reagan was elected, there was never, for, as far as I could tell, any such a dichotomy as religious left or religious right. When you say you didn't feel like there was a dichotomy, did you feel like there wasn't a whole lot of commerce between your your faith and sort of your political beliefs? Or do you mean like you thought that everybody was of one political persuasion who was religious? No, what I, I guess, and of course this is a long time ago, um, I'm trying to remember being less than 20 years old, but <laughs> I, I don't remember one's faith tradition being, being necessarily associated with one's political positions. I mean, it was as diverse a thing as anything else. It doesn't seem to me that mm-hmm. until the moral majority and Jerry Falwell and and Ronald Reagan and the like came along and, and defined a religious right as distinct from a religious left that I ever thought of myself as mm-hmm. religious left. Uh, how about you, Ryan? Yeah, I always like to blow my friends' minds who grew up in more conservative Christian households and like had came around to a more Christian left uh, orientation in their college years and so forth uh, by telling them a true thing, which is that I honestly did not know that there was any public perception of Christianity as usually conservative until I was 18 years old. Uh, I, and 
And then I have to go back and think to myself, is that actually true? But it is. I had a friend who came up and said, you know, you really seem like you'd be a Republican. And I thought you were a Republican. And I was like deeply offended. (laughs) (laughs) I demanded why. And she said, well, you're so Christian and you are all spending time at church. So I just kind of figured you're a Republican. And it was like my world was turned upside down. It doesn't make any sense because like Jesus and these countercultural and like hang out the pores and like it it was like the least republican figure i could imagine and but that is part of because of the circumstances i grew up in i I grew up in uh as a good liberal mainline protestant kid in a elca lutheran congregation uh it was home to a bunch of seminary professors and a rotation of seminary students so my faith was formed in this place that was pretty erudite and uh, international and constituency and, you know, we're liberal. But I didn't, I just took it for granted that our religious communities, Christian communities were open and affirming to people in same gender relationships. And I took it for granted that women could be ordained leaders uh, in Christian churches everywhere. And it wasn't until later in life that I learned I'd kind of grown up in this place that didn't look like all that's really interesting that you say that because I, my family has the same experience of people assuming things about our beliefs <laughs> based on the fact that we're Christians. And in fact, my husband, who's a minister, if he doesn't want to get into like the fact that people are going to react one way or the other when they find out what he does for a living, he says that he's a motivational speaker when people ask what he does. <laughs> if he doesn't feel like dealing with it, he'll be like, oh, I'm a motivational speaker because it's kind of true. He preaches. It's just he that way he doesn't get like into discussions with people who suddenly they think they know everything about his politics. So <laughs> I feel you. <yeah. laughs> yeah, Ryan, I think my my experience growing up was somewhat similar to yours. I mean, I certainly knew Christians who were conservative, but I grew up Catholic and my family, my Catholic side of my family was, was all Democrats, you know, and it it made sense to me that of course Catholics would be Democrats. That just made all the sense in the world. And it wasn't until much, much later that the Catholic side of my family started to have a lot of problems sort of reconciling the, the different things they believed as Catholics that didn't line up with what they believed as Democrats. But certainly being Republican didn't make sense either. And so it was this sort of weird disconnect for them. So I I didn't grow up thinking that all Christians were Democrats, but I certainly grew up thinking that that was a perfectly normal thing. I guess when it comes right down to it, I'm a little uneasy with, with labels like Christian right or Christian left. I mean, for instance, speaking of growing up Roman Catholic, my understanding is that uh, leading up to Obergefell, uh, the Supreme Court decision that legalized same-sex marriage, uh, United States Catholics supported marriage equality at a higher rate than the general population. So mm-hmm. I think it's 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 misleading to try to push people either onto one side of the aisle or the other based on faith tradition, because mm-hmm. people are very complicated. I mean, I've been a lot of those people who, who were in favor of marriage equality were against abortion or were um, big Dorothy Day fans or embarrassed by Dorothy Day or who knows? I mean, it, 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 people are complicated. That's my contrarian answer. <laughs> yeah, it's also interesting because the Catholic Church has traditionally been what we would think of as more conservative on on sort of 
social issues, but they've always been very interested in helping the poor and in, do I even want to use the phrase redistribution of wealth? Sure. Like they've always been very into sort of social justice issues in terms of economic justice. So it's hard to sort of pin down the Catholic church in that way. I think it's funny how worked up people are getting about Pope Francis. They seem to have forgotten how interested John Paul II was in economic justice mm-hmm. and in um, his anti-adventurism uh, in Nicaragua, for instance. He didn't want us in Nicaragua and El Salvador either. Um, but we've forgotten all that. We remember him as a champion of quote-unquote traditional family values and have forgotten how what, what a rash he gave Congress with his encyclicals on social justice. So I want to come back really quickly to something we just talked about, which was marriage equality. I know that the Christian left and the religious left in general had a really big influence in the relatively rapid social acceptance of marriage equality in the United States in like the past 20 years. Uh, I know specifically in New York, uh, the religious left and specifically the Christian left was very influential in passing the original state bill to allow marriage equality in the state. I know this because I was in New York at a seminary at the time. Ah. (laughs) And so I saw it and I read all of the articles in the New York Times about it. But uh, the religious left had a really big impact on that particular issue. So I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about why do we think that the Christian left had a strong influence on that issue and what other issues do you think the Christian left is influencing today? So I'll jump in with a thought, and it relates to the kind of the posture that Scott was describing that I, that I, that I too have a little bit of, I find myself struggling with, you know, the, the posture of that there's this kind of the Christian right as this thing that everybody knows, and the Christian left, as, if we're going to call it that, has to, has to have this sort of insurgent uh, or, you know, defining itself against the dominant understanding of Christianity in the United States. But I think mm-hmm. these moments where cultural change is happening, that posture actually becomes advantageous because there's a certain power and a certain attention-grabbing ability in having religious leaders or you know religious groups of people speaking with the authority of the tradition saying, we believe this thing, whether it's marriage equality or uh, if we want to discuss other issues, uh, we believe that we have a moral underpinning for this thing, especially when uh, a lot of the narrative people are hearing, you know, when it, when it was Prop 8 in California and other things elsewhere, uh, where, when you were getting large amounts of Catholic or Mormon money uh, to try to advance things that were going to push, a mar- push marriage equality backwards, to have Christians standing on equally <laughs> equally Christian principles uh, saying, no, we believe that this is part of God's vision for creation. We believe that this is uh, the very love that we are instructed to share with one another, uh, and these other things are not, that that insurgent quality gets a lot of attention and can move the needle a little bit and change the conversation. Uh, it's not one side is we are the religion side, and the other side is we are the anti-religion side. It's uh, religion is nuanced, and we're over here with with an opinion that's going to move the argument a little bit. Do you think that there's something specific about the marriage equality debate that is somehow sort of fundamentally different from something like 
abortion or the death penalty or something, some other issue on which you might find religious people weighing in? Is there something about marriage equality because it is not an issue of life and death? It's not an issue of, it's still an issue of people's bodies, of course, but I, I just, I wonder if there's something about the framing of that that gives it a little more of that space for it not to be sort of quite as polarizing uh, in terms of there being room for religious faith to say, we accept this and we think that this is important and, and part of what we believe. Well, it's funny you say framing. I think framing is key. Um... I read about a, uh, a study, and I, I can, I'm afraid I can't cite specifics on this off the top of my head. But it was a few years ago, a, a survey came out asking the question, do you believe gay men and lesbians should be allowed to serve openly in the military? Another version of that same study asked, do you believe homosexuals should be able to serve openly in the military? Hmm. And depending on whether the words gay men and lesbians or homosexuals was used, the, it skewed the outcome 15%. 15% of people changed their minds, in other words, about whether that should be allowed, depending on whether you said gay men and lesbians or homosexuals. So I think a, an awful lot of this is about framing. I mean, I understand why so many churches in Philadelphia are picketing gun shops. And I understand why we're demonstrating for you know, free and fair funding for schools and for living wages. And I even understand the pro-life position. I do not understand any of the urgent state needs arguments people make in favor of discrimination in marriage. It, it, it seems to be 100% about framing and about one social, one social vision prevailing over other social visions. I don't see how, I think framing has a lot to do with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, if you if you think about it as people and as marriage, it's very different than thinking about sex, right? Sex is something, mm -hmm. bodies are something that seem to be particularly charged in the religious right, you know, especially women's bodies, you know, in, in a way that if you're talking about marriage, if you're talking about love, you can sort of spin that a little to be not it, it's still about people's bodies and people's choices about their bodies, but it's also about their choices about love. And, you know, as religious people, we can accept love, you know, and, and marriage and in a way that I think it, it, it could be partly about that, that that's part of the reason that that has become an argument that can be made more easily. Well, and I feel like there's something inherently attractive to the sort of social conservative about a movement that is seeking to elevate the ideal of marriage, right? Like there's something appealing about a movement that's saying, hey, look, we want people to be monogamous and get married and have children. You know, there's something appealing in that argument. So I think that that has been one of the places where people of different political orientations can, can come together is in this one point because it's got something that's very appealing to traditional social conservatives and that the emphasis on the home and on the family. And I think related to that, that's sort of a, a, a positive attraction to the issue on the sort of flip side of that coin. I think it also has to do with the fundamental, pun intended, anxiety in a lot of the religious right 
which is we're losing or going to lose control of either our own tradition, but more importantly, for especially for this political moment, we're going to lose our seat as the moral authority of what American society looks like. If somebody else gets to decide what marriage looks like, that's, you know, the one of the several things that is at a very deep level, a defining aspect of what a society looks like. And right now, you know, they feel like they get to hold, they have, have held the cards and say, you know, boom, it's a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, we have a sign. Uh, it's very, it's very easy to hold up. Uh, and if all of a sudden people say, well, you know, actually this kind of marriage works too, and my marriage is as valid as that, and we don't really need your religious authority, thank you anyway. The thing that people keep saying about uh, a lot of things at this moment, which is, you know, when you're used to having ultimate authority, any loss of your privilege feels like oppression. And I think that anxiety kicks up when all of a sudden they're saying, wait a minute, we don't get to be the ones who say whose marriage is real and whose marriage isn't real. Our religious values aren't de facto the moral values of the society I have to fight back against that because we're losing ground and we're losing our privileged seat at the table. So I know that Scott had brought up pro-life position. So I'm going to ask about abortion. Prepare yourself. Um, one <laughs> issue that I always hear about from people who are more right-leaning Christians is how can I vote for candidates who don't seek to outlaw abortion. I know a lot of people talked to me during the 2016 campaign and I would explain why I was supporting and voting for the Democratic candidate and how that aligned with my beliefs. And then they would say, but I just can't, I can't agree with you because I can't vote for somebody who doesn't want to outlaw abortion. So how do each of you view the issue of abortion and what role does it play in your overall political and spiritual worldview? This is going to sound, maybe sound like a terrible snob, I'm afraid. But I think the answer to that depends on whom you ask. I believe there are a lot of leaders in the so-called Christian right who couldn't care less about actually reducing abortions. It's purely a wedge issue for them. Because the fact is, you can reduce more abortions by making comprehensive sex ed available, by making contraception available, by making child care and uh, early childhood development help available than you can by outlawing abortion. Um, so I believe if you talk to the leadership, that a lot of it is disingenuous um, and uh, it's not honest at all. I believe if you talk to a lot of rank and file conservative Christians, that's above their pay grade. They don't get that. All they hear is that mm. you're going to leave abortion legal. That's wrong. The, 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 it's, it's, it's less an issue of trying to have there be fewer abortions than it is being on the right side of the issue morally be able to say, this is illegal because it's wrong, and I don't care about anything else. I also tend to sort of bracket it for a couple of reasons. First of all, at some point in my personal development, I sort of accepted the notion that I'm never going to have to get an abortion, so I'm not going to invest heavily in uh, in trying to affect abortion policy. It, at the same time, I'm going to stand up for the rights of my friends to do what they want with their own bodies. But that all so that's some of the bracketing, but the pertinent to this conversation is some of the historical reading I had to do in school about the rise of the Christian right. 
And I think Scott is exactly right that this has been embraced as a wedge issue. It has been uh, embraced as an issue to gin up energy for people to sort of coalesce around uh, around something that will uh, galvanize them and get them to the polls and get them to church and get them to energize around this us versus them mentality. And you can look at historical evidence for that, where I think it, as recently as the 1978 Southern Baptist Convention declined to include opposition to abortion as a plank in their platform, largely because at that time it was still a Catholic issue and they didn't want to be seen as too in line with Catholics. So mm -hmm. we're a generation or two removed from a lot of the same congregations and communities who now see this as their all-defining issue, uh, having given it a second seat to being not too Catholic. And because of that, and truly because of Part A, uh, where you know, as a man, I'm very content to be in the passenger seat on the issue of abortion. I, I generally bracket it and try to not let it pull me into the kinds of destructive conversations that I might otherwise get into with my more conservative Christian friends and neighbors. So Sophie, as the female Christian left person in the conversation, <laughs> how, do, <laughs> how do you respond to this question? So generally, the tack that I take, I am pro-choice. I am here because of, of an abortion that my grandmother had. So I, I sort of owe my life to abortion in some sort of weird way. But I always have this come up with friends, some of whom are more religious than others, but all of whom consider themselves Christian, who will always say, how can you vote for someone who supports abortion rights? And first of all, I, I usually talk about what both Scott and Ryan have talked about, about how um, the best way to decrease the number of abortions is actually not to make abortion illegal, but to provide contraception to women, to provide affordable health care to women, to provide things like paid family leave. Those are the sorts of things that help people be able to not get pregnant in the first place or to continue the pregnancy if that's what they choose. But then beyond that, one thing that I, that is sort of the core of my beliefs around abortion is that it doesn't actually matter whether a fetus is a life because you can't force somebody to give up their body to save another person's life. If my sister needed a kidney and I was a match and she was going to die without that kidney, I have the right to say no to the kidney transplant and nobody can hold me down and make me give my kidney to my sister even if she's going to die. So you can't make women give up their bodies, even if a fetus is a person, in order to save that person. So that's that's sort of the core of my abortion beliefs. Yeah, I think it's, it's a tricky thing. You know, I don't think we're going to get a lot of people who are in the sort of quote-unquote religious right to start voting for Democrats, even if they changed their view on abortion. You know, I... It's just being used as a wedge issue. But I do think it's a sticking point still for a lot of Catholic voters. And, you know, it, it's something that a lot of the, the Catholics in my family are still struggling with. I think they're, for the most part, they are voting for Democrats because on every other issue, they align very well with Democrats. But they're still having trouble sort of reconciling the abortion question. And so I think the kinds of ways that you're talking about it, Sophie, are are important for people to be hearing and to be thinking about, uh, you know, I, 
I don't know how much your second argument would hold water with the kinds of voters that I'm thinking of, but certainly all these ideas about, you know, here are all the other things that Democrats stand for that are going to help reduce abortions. I mean, that's, I think, extremely important, and it's something that I don't think Democrats have been saying enough to appeal to the segment of Christian voters who are more or less on the Christian left, except for this issue. I remember when I was in graduate school, I must have been 24, I used to walk past an Episcopal church on my way to campus, and the church was across the street from a public high school. And the church ran a free daycare center in its basement so that students who had babies could drop off their babies and finish high school, which to me is the way to keep abortions low. But I remember one day I was walking past the church, and there were a bunch of people picketing the church, handing out flyers saying, Trinity Church supports unwed motherhood. And the, wow. It's, it's reasons <laughs> like that that make me think that it's really, it's not about getting rid of abortion. It's about being on the right moral side of the issue. Whatever the outcomes are, the point is to be right. So I think it's going to be very difficult, as you say, to make any headway with straight, hardline, pro-life voters with any kind of, not only uh, sister needs a kidney argument, but really any argument based on reducing the number of abortions as opposed to being on the right side of the issue morally. So... I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but I know some people in my life have asked me, how can I have political beliefs that sort of are based on my religious beliefs? Don't I believe that, that your political beliefs should be completely separate from my religious beliefs? How would you respond to people that think that? So, yeah, I'm thinking back to grad school readings and, and not wanting to go there because I'll, I'll, I'll butcher them and <laughs> embarrass my school and my <laughs> colleagues. But, uh, but, but I, I do believe in the filtering that can happen at, between the core of one's beliefs and then the beliefs themselves that that moral core forms and then the public action that those beliefs take in the form of demonstration and voting and so forth, that even if when my hand takes a pen and takes it to a ballot and I vote for a candidate because they align with a whole bunch of beliefs that are informed by core convictions that have their roots in my religious faith, just because that carries through all those levels doesn't mean that it's not, that everything in between doesn't also exist and and not and might not otherwise exist. You know, if I believe uh, if I believe that no one should go hungry or that to pick something more current and polemical, if I believe that there is such thing as too much wealth and that belief comes from, you know, you can find a whole bunch of Christian scripture that sort of says wealth is not a good thing. I also believe it can believe it from another angle, and my my friends who are also going to the polls can believe it from a completely other angle that says it's not good for society, it's not sustainable for society, it's going to lead to societal collapse, and in the meantime, it's going to lead to suffering. So I think that it's not what a lot of people think it is, which is some separation of church and state issue. I mean, it's not about, I don't want people to be in office because they hold my beliefs. I want people to be in office because the positions they hold and the actions they will take align with the beliefs that are also informed my, by my religious faith. And I know I have multiple friends and relatives for whom that would sound like a bunch of 
mumbo jumbo trying to make it not, you know, put all these weird little pathways together to make it not a conflict. But I truly believe that it's not because of all of the different valences from which one's beliefs and public actions can come. Yeah, so I'm not religious, but I was raised in a religious faith. And there is no such thing as a truly objective viewpoint that a person has, right? I mean, everything mm -hmm. that I believe came from somewhere, and a lot of it came from the religion in which I was raised. And the fact that I am no longer religious doesn't change the fact that my views come from somewhere. And so I think it would be impossible for anyone to separate out their religious beliefs from their political beliefs any more than it would be possible for you to separate out your political beliefs from the way you were raised, from the, the place that you lived in, from the political beliefs that your parents had. I mean, all of these things inform what you believe about politics and how politics should be done. You know, in my mind, I believe that what I believe is just objectively right, but of course that that's not the case, right? I mean, there it it's something subjective. It's something that comes from somewhere. So, you know, I, I think it's one thing to say that, you know, a religious leader shouldn't tell somebody how to vote. I mean, that maybe is a line that we can say shouldn't be crossed. But to say you can't use your religious beliefs to inform your political beliefs makes no sense. And that, of course, is so... objectively true, what I just said. <laughs> Obviously. I knew that. So one thing that comes up a lot uh, with my husband and his other friends who are ministers in the Episcopal Church especially is that religion has seen a pretty rapid decline in membership over the past few decades in the United States and really over a longer period than that, but especially over the past few decades. So can we talk a little bit about why we think people have become less religious in the 20th and 21st centuries? One thing I hear from a lot of people is actually related to the Christian right, but I wanted to hear what you guys think. I'm not going to answer your question. <laughs> I am instead going to say something related to your question. I heard someone say, and I forget who it was, but I think it was one of these new style evangelical young writers, say that uh, getting divorced the first time you fall out of love is like trading in your car the first time it runs out of gas. Uh, I hear people very often describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. But to me, spirituality is very dependent on on so many, so many, so many things. I tell people, if I only behaved like a married person and I was feeling actively in love, I wouldn't stay married very long. A relationship is work, and sometimes you don't feel like doing the work, but you keep showing up and doing the work because the work needs to be done. And that's how you keep the relationship strong and healthy. My, my usual position is that religion is what shows up for work when spirituality calls in sick. I think a reliance on so-called spirituality in the absence of the discipline by a specific religious tradition is a recipe for having your spirituality be reliant on your mood, on your circumstances, on all kinds of things beyond your control. Whereas what religion does, a, a, a discipline, uh, a, a confessed faith, a regular application of yourself is that it does the work when the work needs doing and you don't feel like doing it. And I think what the churches, what the churches are failing to do is give people a reason to understand that. The churches are failing to show people the value of the work of religion and its service to the emotional and subjective and feeling life 
of spirituality. I think that that is all, I think that's right. And mostly I just have a gazillion different answers to this question going through my head simultaneously. So we'll see which one I end up talking about by the time I am this sentence. I think I'm gonna do the, the 30,000 foot thing uh, and, and think about how it has to do a lot with just the opening of possibility for people to decide what they want to be in their life in general over the last half century. That just the the we talk about after 1960s cultural revolution and and, and just yeah the, the opening of possibility that hey you know what maybe I can get a lot of what my parents wanted me to get from church in other ways and I don't have to get up on Sunday morning or maybe I can you know sort of filter for myself what in the tradition I inherited is worthwhile and what is not worthwhile and. Uh, part of what is not worthwhile for me is going to this place every week, or and then once and then you know a related thing that I, once that filtering has happened is, huh? I've sort of filtered out that what matters to me is are these really big ideas about you know universal love and uh, caring for something beyond oneself, caring for others as much or more than one cares for oneself, and then when you do go back on Sunday morning, hearing things that are totally disjoint from that, or uh, when you turn on the news, hearing things that are totally disjoint from that. And I think I think a lot of people see a disconnect between the very high goods of their traditions and how it gets manifested by people. And so I think if, if you want to point to a thing that the churches, since I'm speaking from the liberal mainline Protestant world, I think the churches have not moved quickly enough to adjust all the levels on their different tracks of the different audio tracks. So they've got these audio tracks of 1600-year-old creedal confessions that are talking about very specific beliefs articulated to resolve debates in the 4th, 5th, and 6th century. And people are like, I don't even know. I'm like only 65% on whether there's God. I don't need to get into like all of this Athanasian stuff. Just, you know, <laughs> talk to me about love and talk to me about, you know, who Christ was and why I'm better off with Christ in my life and the world is better off with Christianity. And uh, I think the churches haven't moved quickly enough to sort of tone down the things that are going to make people go, yeah, no, I'm better off going to brunch. And by the, I don't think that brunch is a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> Not mutually exclusive, but tone down the things that are going to make people say, no, this place isn't worth coming back to and turn up the things. People go, oh my gosh, yes, this is a sacred flame that is being carried through centuries of humanity and is very important and I want to be part of it. So I guess that starts to answer the follow-up question, which is, how do you get people back into the church? Or should we be getting people back into the church? Or, you know, what what's the future? You know, so if the answer then is the churches need to do a better job sort of meeting people where they are and providing the things for them that they can't get elsewhere, I may be misreading what you're saying, but, you know, that's that's sort of what I'm pulling out of it you know, and maybe there are ways of doing that. I mean, I think that Scott's right about this idea of 
doing the work that needs to be done and, you know, shouldn't just make it so easy for people that <laughs> they they don't have to have any effort because then there's no commitment either. But, you know, maybe the answer is to, to have church at brunch. <laughs> um, but, you know, what, so what, where do you go with that? What, what is the answer? Should, should churches writ large here be doing more outreach to, to bring people back into them? Is there some other path that, that we're going toward here? I'll tell you the two words in the question that make me uneasy are the words should churches. <laughs> um, Fair enough. Yes. <laughs> because I mean, I think there are probably as many answers to that. For, for every successful growing church, you can find a different answer to that. I mean, the church I attend has been growing in activities, in numbers, in commitment, in impact. It's been wonderful. And uh, in the, the uh, meeting room, the staff room, there's a sign on the wall that says how to implement a new idea. And it's a flow chart. And the first says, seek partners. And then if there are no partners, the flow chart sends you back to the beginning, seek partners. The way that our church has been able to grow as much as it has has been to partner with other community organizations over things that are important to all of us whether it's uh, gun control or free and fair funding for the schools or living wage or various teen job programs. And I think in our case, one of the things that has, has been appealing about our church is that we do those things because they are good things. We don't do them to get people to come to church. We do those mm. things because they make mm -hmm. the world a better place and people see that and some of them come to the church and some of them don't. And that's great. That's all great. It's all good because everything good is, is happening. And I really believe it's a mistake to do things to get people to come to church. That, that makes absolute sense to me. And it makes me think of, a, of, a, of an example. So I worked for a couple of years as the interim Lutheran campus minister at the University of Chicago. And uh, we started doing a program called Comfort Food for Finals. And sort of against the spirit of what was just said, I, I did first envision it as like, boy, this would be a really great outreach opportunity. Like uh, Lutherans have this sort of like middle, middle slash lower middle tradition of like bringing a bunch of cheap food to a church potluck. So why don't we like take that on the road and like share a bunch of cheap food? We'd picked macaroni and cheese uh, with college students the night before finals study period began as sort of brain food and comfort food at a dismal time. And it immediately became apparent that it was not going to be a big uh, recruiting event. We weren't going to all of a sudden have 15 new people show up because we gave them macaroni and cheese. But it also became immediately apparent that we didn't care because what we were doing was uh, exactly an outflow of our mission, which is to offer care and comfort and indeed even though it's in macaroni and cheese form love to people <laughs> without expecting anything in return and it, this was a super lutheran moment but we actually had a student where who was going through the line and sort of like gave us this bewildered look and it's like do, do do i have to give you anything and we're like no i don't have to give you anything it's fine like do i have to sign up for anything like no you don't have to sign up for anything it's great <laughs> I haven't done anything to deserve this. <laughs> <laughs> and we were like, oh my gosh, the exit previous campus pastor is going to nerd out so hard when she hears about this. But I, I think that kind of thing, uh, what Scott said, you know, just 
getting back to the question of who are we and and why and what does that mean for what we're going to do and then doing that those many things hopefully because they're what we do and are called to do and not because boy this will really just bring in a whole bunch of new people at the same time i mean i i know that for a lot of congregations or other religious communities that all sounds great, but it's a question of resources. You know, over the course of 30 years, they've seen themselves go from uh, people to 50 people to 18 people, and the building still costs as much as it did and even more because it's older. And what do you do about that? A, a lot of religious communities are having to deal with the question of, is it a failure for us to say goodbye to this building because there's not enough of us, or is it an opportunity for new life? And indeed, in, here in Chicago and elsewhere, a lot of religious communities have gone through that painful process of sort of saying, all right, we are not about the building. We're giving up this claim to this big, visible stone edifice in a prominent location and taking our show on the road. But by doing so and by engaging with the community around them have seen new life and have all of a sudden seen those numbers go back up to 50 and 100 because they are doing a new thing that is growing out of what is most essential to them, which is gathering in community to celebrate God's love and showing that to people. So much like any organization has to, when facing hard times, get back to the fundamental question of who are we and why and and what would be if we were not, I think by doing that and then following whatever leads out of it is going to be the way forward that bears fruit for folks. I think that's a really great answer. And I think for me, one thing I, I would like to see the church do is make the case for communal action. One of the reasons I think church general religious observation has, has gone down in the 20th and 21st centuries has been a general decline in sort of communal uh, action. So like there's also been a sort of parallel decline in union membership, in political party affiliation, in lots of different actual community organizations. And so I think for a while there were some churches, primarily evangelical churches that were just sort of getting around this by making the argument that religion was a personal thing, that it was all about your personal relationship with Jesus, and that was what mattered. So mainline churches didn't make that argument as well, and so they, they suffered an even larger decline in membership than a lot of evangelicals. And so for that reason, I think churches need to make the case for, no, it's not only okay to think about other people, it's the right thing to do. You have to look beyond yourself and your individual, you know, needs and wants. They have to make the case for community. Yeah, and to that end, I would say that one of the best ways for churches to attract members, and, you know, again, this doesn't need to be in order to attract members, but it does work really well, is through kids. So, you know, my kids go to a Catholic school and we go to the Catholic church. My husband and I are not religious, but we go to the church and our kids, in fact, are fairly religious. But, you know, we also, we often go to other churches in the area because they're having some sort of family event, you know, and it's, it's very low key. It's very, you don't have to sign up for the church, but 
you're welcome here and and we do feel welcome and it, it's the kind of thing that you know if we then are looking to join a church we are far more likely to go to one of these churches where we have been welcomed as a family of young children is there anything else that either of you want to say want our listeners to know i have a question and you might not end up yeah. wanting to use it uh, it might be dilatory uh, i think kelly i think you said i think three or four times now that you're not religious. <laughs> How would it be different if you were? That's a, a good question and something I've spent a lot of my life thinking about. So uh, to me, the way that I define that I am not religious and perhaps the church would or would not care about this is that I don't believe in God. And so to me, the the things that I do that are religious and so i send my kids to catholic school and i do go to church with them not every sunday but we do go to church we participate quite a bit in the church now only because the kids are there and i still when i'm with my catholic family spend time you know at the church but to me that that missing piece of not no longer believing means that i no longer feel a deeper connection to the church. So to me, the the church that I am in fact a member of does not feel like a spiritual home to me. It is a, a group of people, it is an organization that I care about, that I connect with, but I don't feel that I can use the term religious in the way that I interact with it. What a spiritual home like. Well, I don't know. So for me, I think that I, it's been so long since I have had a, a belief that I consider to be religious or spiritual in any way that I'm not sure what that would look like to me. But I, for me, the closest thing to a spiritual home right now is something like this podcast. <laughs> so <laughs> the, this sort of political life of the mind is the kind of thing that feels closest to a spiritual home to me in a way that my interactions with either the church I belong to or any church really do not feel that way to me. Thank you. Those are very gracious answers to my sudden and nosy question. <laughs> you know, I, I have a master's degree in religious studies. It's not that I've never thought about these things. <laughs> uh, I think for my own part, just because you know, our, my own preaching tradition uh, always has to include some sort of exhortation. Uh, it would just be to all of those out there, and this is lifting up what Scott said at the very beginning, and, and I feel very deeply that to all those out there who do identify within the Christian left or liberal Christianity, to do so proudly, but to also not accept the premise that we have to be defined against the other as, as 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 an other in the presence of some other more generally accepted Christianity. I think well, well my boss uh, <laughs> at the seminary genuinely believes and often tells us that you know in 20 or 30 years it will be the more liberal Christianity that has kind of taken the mantle of of the most present and thriving and publicly visible Christianity in the country for a variety of reasons. It's partly just because you know, he really likes the church and he's really liberal, so <laughs> he's just hoping for the best. But uh, if we're going to move in that direction, uh, I think it will be by really living into the idea that what we are 
embracing and what we are bringing to the public is not just the Christian left, but Christianity. This is our Christianity, and it is what it is. We believe it's good. We hope you do too. Listeners, for this segment on the religious left, we have with us the Reverend Sarah Oglesby Donegan. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks. It's good to be with you. It's good to have you. Uh, Sarah is uh, a minister at the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship of Topeka. So could you tell us a little bit about Unitarian Universalists? What do they believe? How do they worship? Sure. Sometimes I reference us as the far left end of the Protestant tradition, and we come out of the Reformation as a tradition that was Unitarian and a separate tradition that was Universalist. So those two traditions come together in the 60s after about a hundred years of trying to figure out how to do that. So we definitely come out of, you know, the Judeo-Christian way of worship and, and that sort of thing. But we are a pluralistic tradition these days, which means that in um, our congregations, we have a Protestant format where, you know, you have a sermon and hymns and an offering and children's story, but you might not have always scripture. You might have more secular sources, and the relationship to Jesus is more like a, a Reformed Judaism relationship, which is to say that many of us think he probably existed and did some amazing things, but not so much that he was an incarnation of God, although some of us are more Christian. So we have folks who consider themselves sort of liberal Christians, folks who consider themselves agnostic or Buddhists who want to have as part of their practice being in a church setting with folks on Sunday. We have folks who are atheists or non-theists is another way folks might think of themselves and folks who um, maybe connected to different traditions over time might used to have been Jewish or might have married somebody who has a different tradition than theirs, and now they've ended up in a, a setting where they go to church or fellowship or a congregational meeting on Sundays that on the outside looks like a normal Protestant format but has more more adding into it, a, a wider range of language for the holy, um, a wider set of spiritual practices, and that's sort of like open source religion. Tell us a little bit, if you don't mind, about your faith journey. How did you come to be a minister in the Unitarian Universalist Church? I grew up unchurched, so my experiences with church as a kid were when I spent the night at somebody's house on Saturday, um, maybe sometimes going to church with them, which was always weird since I was unchurched and didn't really know what these folks were doing (laughs) or why they were doing it. So until I was in my early 20s, I really didn't have an idea of what was even in the Bible. I didn't, I mean, I read a lot of literature that referenced the Bible, but I actually had a very loose understanding of what was being referenced. And when I was 21, my mom had started going to a Unitarian fellowship in Denton, Texas, and I moved to Denton to finish college. And there was a women's group that met twice a month in the evening, which when you're 21 sounds a lot more doable than a 10.30 a.m. Sunday service. (laughs) And I 
started going to that women's group and they were really exploring the feminine divine across various traditions and I found that to be intriguing and deepening and they they also worked with ritual and a lot of different ways of referencing the holy but especially from a woman's perspective and so that kind of got me hooked and those women eventually convinced me that showing up at 10:30 on Sunday might be kind of interesting and turns out I thought it was and from that experience I began to you know show up to this partially lay-led congregation and occasionally would help somebody else lead service because when we didn't have a minister there that's what had to happen and that connected me into a wider set of Unitarian women in the southwest area in Texas and I connected with them through a regular conference that happened every year I don't know, just eventually I became somebody who identified as a Unitarian Universalist and who thought, hmm, I don't know, ministry sounds kind of interesting, but at the time Mm -hmm. I was working in an urban community college in downtown Dallas and really liking the work that I was doing, and I worked with low-income first-generation college students, so I kept putting the whole ministry idea like, well, maybe someday that might be something I do, and at some point as I deepened and connected to what seemed to be my yearning or my call, ministry seemed to be the answer to that call. And I went to seminary. I think I did a lot of justice work along the way, and I really connect to the Holy through working on behalf of ending human suffering and environmental devastation. And that work led me to deepen my life as a Unitarian Universalist, most Um, folks in my tradition also connect deeply to justice work to the idea of Mm -hmm. salvation in this life so what can we do to make the world a better place for all of us now as opposed to waiting for heaven and at some point that transition I thought maybe if I went to seminary I would maybe do nonprofit work or something some kind of community organizing as a minister but I eventually ended up serving a congregation here in Topeka and I didn't have to choose. I've, I've done both a lot of justice work in the community and around the state, but also, you know, normal congregational work. So I'm interested that you were both in a very red state before and are now in a, a pretty red state as well. Uh, and sort of exploring the idea that the the ministry that you do, you know, is, is informing your social justice work. And you know, do you think that people are coming to the idea of social justice and, and doing that sort of work through their religion or vice versa? Are they coming to the religion because they're interested in in doing this sort of work? Or, are, you know, is it is it not so straightforward as either one of those? You know, I think that for a long time for Unitarian Universalists, who see themselves frequently as folks who aren't religious in quite the same way that other Christian traditions are. A lot of folks came to the social justice work as what they considered to be their spiritual practice or their religious work and were maybe uncomfortable with the idea of contemplative practices or spiritual deepening. And I think in the last 10 years, many of us have come to see how much those two pieces are the yin and yang and and need each other. That good um, justice work demands spiritual growth and grounding 
and reflection and that a good real deepening and spiritual reflection often leads us back out into the world because we are attending to our own healing and become aware of the healing that needs to happen in the world around us and we have tools then to take out into that world so i i'm beginning to see both in terms of folks who used to be more prayers who want to become more doers and doers who have become more able to, even if they wouldn't call it prayer, to connect um, in a deeper way in relationship both with each other and with some sense of that which is greater than us, whether they would call it God or the Holy or Spirit or the universe. I mean, people have lots of different language for it, right? It's not all Christ the healer for everyone. But, but I think activists who don't ground themselves in some way burn out. And we can't afford for that to happen, right? So my experience is that folks are beginning to see that, that we need both pieces, that idea of praxis, that we're going to go do some work in the world, and then we're going to sit down and reflect on it, pray about it, shift maybe internally, and then go back out and do the work with a new, deeper understanding of who we're doing the work with and why we're doing it and how it is changing us and healing us as well as offering healing to others. I see that shift has been happening, but I think in my spiritual community, which wouldn't always consider itself spiritual, might have considered itself more intellectual in some some spaces, uh, the folks are beginning to see the the need for integration of those two ideas of how we um, might be religious as a community differently. Could you talk a little bit about the ways in which Unitarian Universalists have been fighting for social justice? I know personally that uh, some of the Unitarian Universalists I know have been really active in immigration policy right now and helping immigrants and people targeted by ICE. Can you talk a little bit about some some sort of specific uh, things that people are doing? Sure. I would say grounded in the idea, two of our core principles, one of them is that there's inherent worth and dignity in all people, and that would translate to saying that all souls are sacred and worthy. And then this other sense that um, we're part of an interdependent web and that we inherently need each other, and not just us people, but the, the beings of the earth, that all things that are living are inherently interconnected. Those two concepts have really pushed us to see, first, the importance of uh, women as leaders to work in the 60s and 70s on LGBTQ issues and not really fully understanding the commitment we needed to make to those till the 80s and 90s. That work also connected into eventually work on immigration. The work of a group that we've affiliated with called Standing on the Side of Love really grew out of the Unitarian Universalist work in justice work. And that has connected us to immigration, to the environment, to racial justice, and to seeing all of those as being an, an LGBTQ rights and justice, that all of these, we're beginning to see the ways in which they interconnect. And so some churches may find in their community that immigration is where they really have spent a lot of time and energy becoming sanctuary churches or figuring out how to support other churches that are sanctuary or providing 
support to folks who are in detention centers. When I was in Denver, that was a big piece of the justice work that was happening. And, you know, as Ferguson unrolled and we began to have so much highlight on police violence and racial justice as being connected into this larger issue of policing, a lot of congregations also getting involved in uncovering the culture of white supremacy in our communities, helping our congregants to begin to see how they're playing into that culture and how to begin to step out of it and to speak up for, walk with, support people of color and and the fights that they're making. And seeing the intersectionality of, of all of that. I mean, Black Lives Matter really led the the movement this way by saying, look, we show up as women, we show up as folks who have a non-binary identity, and, and, and we're showing up to fight for racial justice and for immigrants. And, and we're not leaving any piece of our identity behind, right? We're bringing all those pieces mm-hmm. together. And so beginning to see how those pieces intersect and, and why it's important to see that they intersect and how, how we can connect that work together. Uh, the work of Reverend Barber, which is also that kind of fusion politics, has, has really pushed that. So I see it happening around us, and I see Unitarian Universalist congregations connecting in through those many ways, seeing themselves as being partners in an interfaith work that's happening in a lot of our communities so that we see that we're standing with our Muslim brothers and sisters and our Buddhist and our Jewish and our Christian brothers and sisters and folks who are pagan and saying, we're also intersectional in our religious identities, and we all have a commitment to having healthy, functioning communities. How can we do this together? Immigration is actually one of those issues that cuts across all of those as well. So, you know, my congregation, you know, here in Kansas, worked very hard on marriage equality and figuring out what it means to be a welcoming congregation. Right now, our real focus has been on racial justice and immigration and but also just connecting that back into very specific local issues right so a black man was killed in our community in september and the the work of my congregation to support our community and trying to figure out how do we hold folks accountable for that how do we change police practices how do we begin to address all the different ways in which white supremacy culture shows up in our community and our institutions, including ourselves and our own church, right? So that there's multiple levels to all of that work. So the the right in this country, the the Republicans have really embraced religion and bringing faith communities into the fold of what it means to be a Republican. And, you know, they've had a lot of success in doing that. And it seems like the the left and the, the Democratic Party have had much more of a tension with religion and not quite sort of known how to interact with faith and how to act with religious traditions. Have you experienced any of that tension? Uh, you know, do you, do you feel that the work that you're doing is something that is recognized by, uh, you know, the, the political parties? Absolutely. Those tensions are very real. And it's interesting because after the election of Trump, I had a number of people show up in my congregation who consider themselves to be more traditional Christians than what would normally show up in a Unitarian setting, but they had found themselves to be in congregations where it was no longer safe to, say, have biracial kids or to be comfortable with LGBTQ folks. 
or to believe that God's love is universal and that we should not be in any way targeting folks who aren't white and aren't straight and aren't cisgender, you know. Some of those folks were showing up in our congregations because they were suddenly in a space that felt hostile and that they couldn't actually talk about the identity of themselves or their family members or their, their deeper beliefs in a, in a universal loving God. In my congregation and in, a, in some Unitarian congregations, the, the tension for us is that we have a lot of folks who don't believe in God. And so we don't necessarily identify as religious in the same way that the folks on the left do. And we're not folks who want to impose one way of thinking and we're a pluralistic tradition right and mm-hmm. what you just described on the <clears throat> far right is the opposite of pluralistic right it's very much prescriptive and what you would believe and how you would show that you believe that and who's in and who's out and our tradition is pluralistic and it's not that anybody can show up in our space and and be comfortable but it is to say that we don't prescribe what the holy should look and sound like to you nor how you ought to pray or not pray, you know, so it's much harder to proselytize someone, right? When what you're saying is we believe in the inherent worth and dignity of all people and all souls are sacred and worthy. That's a different statement than what the religious right has been saying. Mm-hmm. There's a very clear who's in and who's out and what's going to cause you to be on the out in the, that system. So, yeah, but in our, for example, in my congregation, I talked to other clergy around town and, you know, around the election time, they were talking about the divide between the Republicans and the Democrats in their congregation. So the Trumpers versus the Hillary folks. And I I said, you know, I have divided my congregation, but it's the Bernie versus Hillary folks. (laughs) (laughs) And and probably there's Unitarian churches that had a little bit more complexity, but in a red state, a lot of the folks who will show up in a Unitarian setting are folks who aren't comfortable with a very Christian perspective, who are not fitting in with that anywhere, and who still want community, still want the, the structure of a church, of a congregation, still want to raise their kids to have ethical um, values and to be, you know, interact in a particular way in the community to be generous and giving, but not to do that from a context that is prescriptive about behavior. I would say that in our setting, we think of sin on a more corporate level rather than a a more personal level. And it's we're more interested in what I think Jesus was interested in, which is what is the state doing that is sinful, not what are individual people doing that would be causing them to be out of right relationship with each other. It is important to be in right relationship, but I wouldn't say that when you're out of it, that's sinful. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I I think we just have a really different way of dealing with those tensions. Are there other things that you would like people to be thinking about when they think about what it means to be both religious and to care about justice work or, or the ways in which people interact with both their religious faith and the world around them? I guess I would say that my experience has been that folks who identify on the sort of progressive end of the spectrum who are also religious are really moved by, if you're Christian, stories of Jesus really being someone who was willing to take on large political structures and defy them. The the religious stories of the New Testament are about uh, people trying to change the power structure. And so I think 
fundamentally they feel like they're practicing a different religious tradition than right-wing Christians say they are practicing, that they're reading the Bible differently, they're reading scripture differently, and they're understanding Jesus to be fundamentally a different kind of person, someone who would not care uh, whether you were gay or straight or cisgender or, or transgender and would actually welcome folks to the table that might make other folks uncomfortable folks who are homeless, folks who may have gotten into trouble with the law, that that's who Jesus was for for the progressive end of the spectrum. And, you know, there's progressive Muslims and progressive Jews, and I would say that there's progressive Buddhists, and on all of those religious traditions, what I folks seeing is that um, their faith is what causes them to want to make the world a better place. It causes them to want to step in and be active in their communities and give back. There's a generosity of spirit behind that that has to do with really this idea that we're all in it together and that we need to find ways to build bridges and connect. And that's hard when you have another side saying, sort of cutting off the bridge and saying, you can you can join us if you're straight, if you're white. And I don't think they necessarily all say if you're white, but that's the implicit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, have have these sort of ways that they cut off chunks of the community. I would say that the the rest of us who are on that progressive end of the spectrum are really trying to figure out ways to build bridges, create connections, to work as an interfaith community that that we understand that we see the holy in different ways and, and, and that's okay if we can come together to talk about racism or save our neighbors from deportation or address the environmental climate change concerns that we have, that we can do those together. Um, and that when we do them together, we have more power. That's great. And if people are interested in learning more about the Unitarian Universalist tradition, uh, what would be the best? Is there like a, a good website or can they just Google? What would be the best way for people to find out more? Well, the, the, the two ways that I introduce folks to it are through UUA.org which is our association's website that has tons of information about who we are as a tradition and where you might find a local church and what kinds of work we're doing on justice issues, how we worship, all that good stuff, what we teach our kids, um, all of that's on that website. But there's also a web-based church called Church of the Larger Fellowship. And you can, uh, if there's no church close to you or you just kind of want to get a feel for it before you show up in a a brick-and-mortar kind of space, you can experience worship and sermons and music and all of those things online through the Church of the Larger Fellowship. And I would recommend people check out both of those spaces and then, and then you know, look to see if there's a community near them that they might also want to engage with. everybody, this is Kelly, and I'm here in this segment with Jenna Reinbold, who is an assistant professor of religion at Colgate University. Hello, Jenna. Hello. I'm so glad you could be on. For our listeners, Jenna is a friend of mine from graduate school back when I was studying to be a professor of religion, which I did not end up doing. <laughs> so I'm happy to reconnect with her. And 
wanted to talk to Jenna because she's interested in looking at religion and politics, uh, which is something that is very interesting to both me and Sophie. So Jenna, could you tell us a little bit about what your research has been on, what sorts of things you look at? Yeah, I have had kind of two lines of research that I've been working in over the last couple of years. One of them is focusing on questions of sort of religion and secularism within the realm of human rights law. So thinking about how the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was put together and what kinds of religious dynamics there were involved in that and, and also sort of how, how kind of secular ideals worked in the construction of that document and then of kind of human rights ideals that continue to, to shape the international legal landscape. But the other line of work that I have been working on is focused on church-state relationships in the United States. So looking at questions of the separation of church and state in this country and focusing particularly on a couple of really intense political flashpoints and thinking about how those political flashpoints kind of problematize some of our ideas about the separation of church and state. So I've, I've written a number of articles on the same-sex marriage debate in the United States and kind of explored how it is that that has evolved into the culture war issue that it is today. And most of that research is focused on the kind of legal realm. So looking at Supreme Court decisions and how it is that those decisions have been popularized and contested in the political sphere and kind of outside the legal sphere. Yeah, so I think one of the things that's so interesting to me looking at politics and religion, especially politics and Christianity, is that, so I grew up Catholic, and to me, part of being Christian, part of being religious, was always this very strong emphasis on social justice. And so when I look at the two political parties, what I would have just sort of assumed as a kid is that all Christians, all at least Catholics, the way I grew up, would be Democrats. And mm -hmm. and I think that was more true when I was a kid. But then yeah. we've gone through this shift at some point that it seems like the Christian right, the religious right, has really focused on some of these sort of key issues and has determined that the conservative viewpoint is more in line with those specific issues. And, you know, so let's disregard the rest of it. And I saw this most clearly in Catholicism, because suddenly the abortion issue became so important that it overwhelmed the rest of the, the social justice issues. So the sorts of things you've been studying, things like the, the gay marriage debate. Are you seeing some kind of shift, some kind of point in time when these issues really sort of became the catalyst for the religious right sort of moving to the right? Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I think it's worth mentioning that on some of the key issues that we consider to be culture war issues today, gay marriage and abortion, the Catholic Church's position has been has been fairly consistent on, on those particular issues. Mm -hmm. And so while it's not at all uncommon to hear, for example, Pope Francis sort of talking about and sort of attempting to clarify and you know, kind of listen in a more open way to concerns, especially concerns kind of around the gay rights issue, um, the Catholic Church actually has a pretty consistent, a pretty consistent stance on those things, and so I think that one of the questions is how have those issues achieved the kind of political traction that they've achieved that have that in many ways have resulted in staking out a line between between conservative, socially conservative, and socially liberal, and also politically conservative and politically liberal uh, Christians, both Catholics and Protestants. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not so much that I, I, I think it's not so much that the Catholic that 
American Catholics or the Catholic Church has shifted over that period of time as much as these issues have achieved a kind of salience over the last 30 or 40 years. Mm-hmm. And actually much more recently in the case of, of same-sex marriage, but certainly the abortion issue has kind of a longer history of having that kind of salience. So they've, ser- they've served kind of wedges to divide Christian liberals and conservatives over the last number of years. And I think that that is a really interesting question. Some of that has to do with the way in which beginning in the 1970s, conservative evangelical Christians, so conservative Christians on the Protestant side, have aligned themselves with a pre-existing Catholic position on especially the issue of abortion. When Roe versus Wade was decided in 1973, there wasn't a consistent kind of Protestant evangelical position on abortion in the same way that there was within Catholicism. That actually took some work on the part of evangelical Christians to kind of solidify their followers around a kind of conviction, a strong conviction about abortion. And this was something that was done in some cases deliberately in emulation of the way in which the Catholic Church had kind of had kind of solidified a position around abortion. Do you think that a lot of this is coming from within the religious traditions or is it coming from without? Is it politicians latching on to a way in which they can energize religious traditions? I think that's a really interesting question. I I mentioned that some of the work that I have really focused on involves questions of secularism and Mm -hmm. kind of ideas about what it means to separate church and state. And I I make this point all the time to my students. I think that that a kind of a particular kind of understanding of what it means to be increasingly secular as a society simply can't be dismissed as as having as having an influence here in the way in which these issues have have kind of come together. So, for example, uh, in a very famous speech that Ronald Reagan made to a group of of religious leaders in 1980, as he was attempting to kind of solidify his candidacy, he talked repeatedly about the way in which some particular segment of of American politicians, he didn't make clear exactly who it was, but it was clear, it was sort of, it would would have been obvious that he was talking about judges for the most part and kind of liberal politicians. But Reagan talks in this speech about the way in which certain Americans have kind of taken the notion of secularism too far. And now at this point, they've kind of kicked religion out of the public sphere. They've deprived everyday Americans of the opportunity to see their religious convictions reflected in the laws and in the political life of, of their own country. Looking all the way back to that, that kind of rhetoric, I think if you, if you can, you can per- kind of follow that rhetoric all the way up through today, it's a very, very common kind of a, of a focal point. People talk about the kind of problems of American, kind of the kind of ills of American society, religious conservatives will repeatedly, really regularly raise this idea of a kind of secularism that's been taken too far. Mitt Romney, really famously, when he was running for the for the candidacy, talked about a religion of secularism, basically, that was that had now been kind of de facto established over the last number of years. So, so your question about whether this is politicians or religious people who are kind of generating this, I think that um, it's both. I, I don't think that a, a politician like Reagan would necessarily have um, have gravitated to that kind of an idea that, you know, secularism was going too far in society. I don't think he would have gravitated toward that by himself. I think that it required the the help of and the kind of guidance of, of religious leaders who've, who've been preoccupied with that for, for a longer period of time. At the same time, you know, it's, I don't, I don't think that, I don't think that it entirely comes from within religious communities. This is something that has served as a really useful kind of wedge and a very useful way of convincing conservative Christians to kind of hold loyal to the Republican Party for, you know, 30 years, 
I would say that it's probably more complicated than have been coming just from one side or the other. Well, and that maybe starts to explain some of the 2016 election that, you know, on the one hand, you had these conservative religious groups voting for a man who is, as far as we can tell, not really religious at all on his <laughs> third wife and, you know, has has been known to have cheated on wives and, you know, all of that. And and the conservative religions are voting for him, while on the other side, we had a woman who was, in fact, deeply religious, but mm -hmm. who conservative religious people didn't like. If we think about that rhetoric of, you know, that the the liberal viewpoint is is making the country too secular and, and taking religion out of the conversation, you know, that might start to explain some of that. And I think it also starts to explain why the Christian left doesn't seem to emphasize their Christianity. Often you have people, it seems to me, looking from the outside, talking about being liberal, being progressive, being a Democrat, sort of despite their Christianity, <laughs> instead mm -hmm. of because yeah. of their Christianity, you know, and so I that's, that's such an interesting interplay. To, to think about how that's going on, that, you know, instead of saying, I am a Christian, and that's why I believe in same-sex marriage, I mean, there's certainly some of that going on, but it seems like it, it's more people saying, I am Christian, and I agree with same-sex marriage. So it, it's still acting as a wedge. I think that's true. And I think that, I mean, there, there are some ways in which this is the product of a Democratic Party that has for many years just not been able to figure out how to talk about in a comfortable way about religion <laughs> because there's such a strong association with you know when people talk about religion in politics there's such a strong association I think with the Christian right right so so to some extent there's a kind of that's the result of a successful campaign a successful PR campaign on the part of of conservative Christians that they've been able to sort of harness the language or kind of corner the market on the language of morality within politics but I think that this also goes back to you know, back farther, farther in, into the history of the United States, in the, even in the 19th century in the United States, in the second half of the 19th century, Christians were wrestling with the rise of a kind of, in some cases, a kind of outspoken secularism, but in many cases, it was really more of a, of a kind of a sort of necessity to, to kind of reconcile the Bible with new developments in science and new developments in sort of how it is that, that biblical interpretation was done. And in many cases, one of the kind of dividing lines at that point between sort of more liberal and, and what eventually became kind of fundamentalist Christians was a question of, of whether or not Christians should be willing to loosen up their interpretations of the Bible or loosen up to their commitments, uh, to their commitment to the idea that the Bible is, should be taken literally. And even at that point in the late 19th century, you had Christians who were very willing to kind of liberalize their understanding of Christianity to, to kind of accommodate it to, to certain, certain things that people identified as being kind of markers of modernity. This was a very major dividing point in the late 19th and early 20th century between what what we what now we call the kind of mainline churches and what we now also continue to call the, the kind of fundamentalist version of Christianity. I think that there's a long history of sort of identifying that sort of so social justice orientation within Christianity as a kind of abdication of a full commitment to the the text of the Bible or a full commitment to the all of the Bible and a kind of selective reading of the Bible. 
even today, many sort of progressive Protestants and progressive evangelicals will talk about the difference between what they call red letter Christianity. You know, in many versions of the Bible, when you look at the text of the Bible, often Jesus's words within the text are highlighted in red. This is a way in which progressive or liberal Christians will refer to the fact that their emphasis in their own understanding of Christianity is on the, the words of Jesus. And if you take the words of Jesus as the kind of central text within the, the New Testament, you're going to get a very, very strong kind of social justice orientation because so much of what he said in, in the New Testament had that kind of you know, nonconformist social justice kind of orientation. Whereas there are lots of other places in the Bible that you might look that would be sort of beyond the red text where you lose some of that kind of focus on social justice orientation. And there are all kinds of other, other concerns that, that crop up, including concerns around the regulation of sexual purity, the regulation of gender and, and things like that. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that I think, sort of speaks to that disconnect that I was feeling as a Catholic who thought, well, the social justice part is the message. So I, I think, though, looking back at something that you said a few minutes ago about the, the Democratic Party having such a PR problem when it comes to religion, I think that part of what we're talking around is that they're going to continue to have this problem, you know, possibly <laughs> forever. The Democratic Party isn't exactly known for its good messaging lately anyway. But <laughs> I think that, you know, one of the things that's going on here is even if we get to a point where liberal and progressive Christians do start talking more in terms of I am liberal because of my Christianity, you know, I am following the social justice message. Democrats are still going to have to grapple with this. How do we reconcile, you know, sort of speaking to the liberal Christians, speaking to Christians, maybe trying to get more Christians talking about these sort of kitchen table issues and social justice and, and those sorts of things, but then not alienate the people in the party who are very non-religious and in some cases very anti-religious because of the way that they have been treated by certain religious traditions. I, mm -hmm. I guess that's not really a question so much as a comment, but <laughs> uh, you know, do you think that that's something that that can be reconciled? I, you know, is this just going to be something that Democrats are going to have to keep struggling with? Are there any ways that they can find sort of a, a common ground to latch on to? I think it's a great question. I mean, it would be really very advantageous for Democrats to be able to bridge that gap, especially given that in terms of demographics, you know, mainline Protestantism is, is on the decline in this country and has been for a number of years, whereas the kind of unaffiliated or what, the, what many people refer to as the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, you know, if you ask people a question, what religion are you affiliated with or do you identify with, they'll answer none. So the unaffiliated are on the rise and, and, and the mainline churches are on the decline. And so it would be to the advantage of the Democratic Party to be able to, to, to kind of bridge that gap. I think that I think I agree with you. I think it's incredibly hard to, to imagine how it is that, that that one would bridge that gap. There's a kind of deep history, I think, to the kind of sense of embattlement that many sort of secularists and atheists and agnostics feel toward religion, although toward Christianity in particular within this country, a kind of sense of one has to kind of stake out a position and not give any ground on the issue of, you know, religion permeating politics, because if you give any ground, then that's kind of, there's kind of a slippery slope into, into theocracy or, or, or something like that. I think that there are many Americans who are on kind of closer to the unaffiliated side of things who are, who just bristle, right, at the idea of, of a politician even, even 
bringing religion into a political conversation because that's understood to be a kind of language that not everybody speaks and therefore not an appropriate political language to, to speak. For all kinds of reasons, Americans on the more socially, religiously, and politically conservative side are quite comfortable with politicians speaking that kind of language and in fact have really gravitated, partly because of what I said about the kind of language, uh, the kind of threat of secularism or secularization, um, have kind of gravitated toward politicians who are willing to, to break that taboo and really speak about religion in an open way. So in many, in many cases, I think the willingness of a politician to speak openly about religion ha- is it serves as its own kind of culture war issue that, that sort of divides people in a way that becomes very, very difficult to kind of stake out a middle ground on. Yeah, I mean, there's a part of me that has sort of regretted that Hillary Clinton didn't talk more about her religious beliefs during the campaign, that maybe if she had been more explicit about her faith and about how important it was to her, that she could have peeled off some of those voters from Trump. But I do also wonder if maybe the Democrats, uh, some portion of the Democrats would have just sort of outright rejected her and she would have lost more votes to the left, to the, the Jill Steins, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can't know. It's a <laughs> counterfactual, but uh, right. it's an interesting thing looking forward to examine. The contrast between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama is really striking there, right? I mean, o- Obama spoke in a much easier way about his religious convictions and his religious background. And that was, and that even despite the fact that he came into the election with the sort of baggage of Jeremiah Wright having to kind of, you know, figure out a way to, to simultaneously sort of distance himself from Jeremiah Wright and at the same time affirm the, the kind of mentorship and the importance of, of, of Jeremiah Wright in having, having guided him, you know, uh, as, as a kind of spiritual uh, mentor in his life. So there was, I think, in some sense, maybe a different kind of a comfort that many Democrats had with Barack Obama's religiosity because it was not the kind of very conventional sort of white mainline Protestant Christianity that people have people sort of identify with the American presidency going back all the way back through history. And instead, uh, with the exception, obviously, of John Kennedy. And instead, you know, there was something different about about his religiosity that that I think allowed him to maneuver in that space a little bit, a little bit more easily than than Clinton was able to maneuver in that space. Hillary Clinton. I think that actually Bill Clinton maneuvered in that space pretty pretty well pretty well also. Yeah, well I think, you know, the the similarity there besides both Bill Clinton and Barack Obama being sort of very personable people is, you know, both mm-hmm. of them had sort of religion as a cultural landmark that, you know, you expect someone in the south, you expect and Bill Clinton traded very yeah. heavily on being Southern, you know, and so you expect yeah. that someone who's Southern is going to be Christian and that that's going to be important to them culturally. And of course, with Barack Obama, you know, you expect someone growing up as an African-American in this country to, you know, sort of embrace that, the the race religion angle there. So mm-hmm. the the sorts of work that Hillary Clinton had to do was very different, you know, in some ways she had to prove that she was not so establishment. That was the, the big knock on her was, you know, that she's such a, an establishment person. And so perhaps, you know, among other reasons, that's one of the reasons that she felt that she had to sort of keep that hidden. I, you know, I think having 
read a lot of stuff that she's written, it, it's really more that she's just so deeply unwilling to share any part of sort of her person <laughs> to the world mm-hmm. yeah. that, uh, you know, her, her personality remains sort of locked up and hidden when she's uh, on a campaign uh, to her detriment. You know, I think showing more of that would have helped her tremendously. But I think that includes her religion, that she didn't want to be sort of using her religion for political purposes. And uh, it may have actually helped her if she had. I think that's true. I, I mean, I think it's, I, I don't know if it would have helped her, but I think you're absolutely right about about why it is that she would have been hesitant to do that. And who knows? Yeah, who knows if it would have helped or not. <laughs> One of the remarkable things about Trump's candidacy and the, and the high level of support that he has received from you know white Christians in, in the United States, uh, I, think, I think in some ways it can be encapsulated with a particular statistic. This is from Robert Jones. Robert Jones is the end of white Christian America. Robert Jones is the CEO of a, of a group called the Public Religions Research Institute, and they do lots of, you know, kind of data gathering on religion in the United States. And in that book, he talks about a poll that the PRRI had administered in the 1990s that had indicated, it basically had asked the question of how important it is to white evangelical Christians that a political candidate also be a good person, right? So how important is the kind of moral valence of a political candidate? And in the 1990s, 70% of white evangelical Christians said that to be a good political candidate, you also had to be a moral person. So it was a 70-30 divide. They asked the same question again in 2016, and the divide had directly flipped so that 70% of white evangelical Christians will now say that you do not have to be a moral person to be a good political candidate, and 30% will still kind of hold the line on that. So I think that, you know, the question of whether Clinton could have kind of peeled people off of out of the realm of conservative Christianity or, or any way of white kind of white evangelical Christianity and conservative Catholicism, I think is a really, a really interesting question. I think that in some sense, no matter how religious she would have been able to show herself to be, there wouldn't, there wouldn't have been much hope there because it seems to be that it seems to be the case that white Christians were voting for Trump on a different set of, according to a different set of criteria. It wasn't really about how religious or how moral he was, which anybody would know if you look at, again, as you said a few minutes ago, if you look at how it is that he he appears to engage with religion. Mm-hmm. It may be that some of this is very particular to that race and, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and won't apply as much going forward. I mean, there's something very particular about the way that people react to everything that Hillary Clinton does and says. And, you know, mm-hmm. it may be that she never could have come off as authentically religious, even though she is and has been for a long time. And yeah. and so maybe that's something that other candidates won't have to grapple with quite as much. But but I think it is going to be an ongoing discussion and an ongoing important thing for Democratic candidates and the Democratic Party to, to deal with and to think about. I think that's true. Yes. Well, is there anything else you want to make sure that we think about when we're thinking about religion and politics? I think that this episode really shows that you are thinking about something that's really important, which is the fact that there's a there's a whole world out there of particularly evangelical Christianity that's not the Christian right. <laughs> and I've spoken with, with evangelical Christians who understand them, who identify themselves as progressive evangelicals. And that's a that's a source of ongoing frustration within those circles that, that it's the conservative evangelicals that get all of the all of the exposure. So I think it's fantastic to be working to, to nuance that and really kind of unpack what it means to be, you know, a, a member of the Christian left, both from both within Catholicism and within within Protestantism. 
Well, thank you very much for coming on. I think this has added an important sort of historical way of us to to think about this and, and look at this. So I'm very glad that you were able to join us. Thank you for having me. Our theme music is called Sweeter Vermouth and was composed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. It is licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 License. Our logo was created by Matthew Wefflin, expressly for Two Broads Talking Politics, and is copyright 2017. You can contact us at twobroadstalkingpolitics at gmail.com or at twobroadstalk on Twitter. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. Please let us know if you have any trouble finding us.